Welcome to the 2019 case law update with Judge Jim Blake. Uh, judge Jim Blake has been an associate Scottsdale City Judge since 2001. Uh, he's been a member of the Board of Directors of the Arizona Magistrates Association and has been a Vice President and President in the past. He has served on two boards of directors for the Arizona State Bar. He is licensed to practice law in the states of Arizona and Colorado and he has been awarded a Judicial Award for Excellence by the Public Lawyers Section of the State Bar. Uh, and Judge Blake apparently spends almost all of his free time in the city of Montreal. So let's welcome Judge Blake. Actually, it's changing to uh, Bangkok. I just, no. got, I just got back from Bangkok and I'm probably going to go for Labor Day too. Okay. <laughs> it's very cheap there. Um, what we're going to do is talk about um, not all the cases, but some of them. If I skip a case and you want to know about it, just let me know. Um, the first one I want to talk about is number two, State versus Hernandez. And that's the interesting thing. It's like the old uh, thing where if you cross a border, uh, you're suddenly free. And uh, so what the defendant does is he, the police run his car, uh, lack of insurance, it's a civil traffic offense, they light him up, he continues to drive, and just keeps driving, and drives into his girlfriend's curtilage, and then parks in the back, cops go up and talk to him, eventually they find drugs in his car, they move to suppress because they're saying, hey, you can't come on to private property. The Court of Appeals said, yes, you can, and then the Supreme Court actually expanded on it. And basically what they said was, uh, no citizen has a legal right to ignore the police, even in civil traffic, and when uh, you drive like that, you have two options as a citizen. You can stop and submit to the police, or if you drive on to private property, you are inviting them into the private property to come get you. If they, the Supreme Court said, if we went to the Old West concept, where once you pass the New Mexico borderline, the Arizona police can't do anything, to create anarchy. So you cannot just keep driving until you get into the private property and stare at the police and say there's nothing you can do on my private property. So that's been settled that uh, you invite them in. Next case I wanted to talk about, and, uh, well first of all what I want to say is never cite these cases without reading them yourself because you can either go with my interpretation or be wrong, and you will have the right to be wrong. But sometimes I get, well sometimes people say I get it wrong, but I don't think so. But that way at least you read it yourself and you decided this way. Another thing that's important about checking the cases is because um, we're gonna come, we, I'm, we're not gonna jump, it looks like we're gonna jump ahead, but we're not. Okay. Number seven, if you look at it, has been overturned by the Supreme Court. So they should slash out number seven because the Supreme Court has overturned that. And we'll get to that later as we go through the, uh, the cases. Um, I think that's number 30 when they overturned it. And what we wanna talk about now is uh, number four, Z.F. Foster Oshenbach. And basically what that has to do is where the judge is referring to the victim as the alleged victim. And the victim's lawyer objects to that and say, no, you should refer to the victim as the victim. And the victim goes rights. And when you don't do that, you're not treating the victim with the proper respect that that victim deserves. Um, and therefore, you're violating the victim's rights. So the judge said, no, I'm going to refer to the person as the alleged victim. He goes up and uh, they agree with the judge. It's up to the judge to decide, victim or alleged victim. Now, where in a case do you think that could be a real bad issue if the judge is referring to the victim as the victim? Yeah, but what, what type of case, though, if you can think of one? I can I think of one specifically, and I'll bring it up. Basically, what is it? say you have a sexual assault case, and the 
defendant is saying, that victim may very well have been sexually assaulted, but it's not me. She's picked the wrong person. It doesn't matter so much if the judge refers to the person as the victim, because everyone's agreeing they're a victim. It's just not this person who did it. What if you have a sexual assault case, though, where the defense is consent? And they're saying there was no crime. We had a consensual sexual relationship, so there's no crime. When you refer to the person as the victim, how does that square with the right, to, the right of innocence or presumption of innocence? So, and doesn't that undermine the defense, defense where you're saying, no, there was a crime here. That's a victim. Your defense is consent. No, it can't be because I've already decided that there's a victim here, that there's a crime. So that could be an issue where it's really important to refer the person as the alleged victim as opposed to the victim. Some cases, like I said, it doesn't matter. Um, for instance, you know, the sexual assault where you're saying, hey, I totally believe that poor woman was sexually assaulted. It wasn't me. I'm innocent. So that's where it might not matter as much. So be careful on that. And again, it's up to you to make that decision. Um, again, as I said, number seven has been vacated. So you don't have to worry about that. And we'll get to that new one when it comes up. We'll now move to number eight. And number eight has to do with Batson. You don't really see that that much in, uh, in uh, lower courts, but you do see a lot in uh, Superior Court. I remember one time uh, I was doing this game shooting and I had stricken a Hispanic and the two defense lawyers were going to uh, do a Batson challenge. And I said, fine, you know, I'll list as my racially neutral reason that uh, some of my best friends are Hispanics and both defense lawyers are Hispanics. I go, I'm gonna name you both as my friends. We kind of, that was a joke. <laughs> we kind of all laughed about it and they said, come on, we all know what your reason was for striking, just tell the judge. And I go, that's fine, we'll do it. But in this case, what you have is in the Batson challenge, if you're not aware of it, what it is is a party the state or defense, although I've never seen it used against the defense. I had one case where they struck the only person of that race on the jury and my victim was uh, that race and I raised the Batson challenge. What you do is you raise it, you have to make a prima facie case as the party raising it. If the judge finds a prima facie case, then they go to the party that issued the strike and say, what's your racially neutral reason or what is your reason for doing the strike that isn't a violation of Batson? And there, the defense attorney's answer was, uh, the juror had been raped by a man. My client's a man, therefore she hates all men. Now, I would think, as a prosecutor, when I would ask that way at the time, that's ridiculous. I would think as a judge it's ridiculous, but uh, then I wasn't a judge, I was just a prosecutor, and the, the very intelligent judge said, yes, that's a good neutral reason, so I won't move. Um, but I had some problems with that. But if they do in this case, the judge found a prima facie case of discrimination, ask the prosecutor, give me your racial and neutral reasons. If the judge finds they're valid, everything stays the way it is. In this case, the judge did not find it to be valid. So then the question comes is, what is your remedy when the judge does not find it to be um, uh, neutral? And in this case, what the defense wanted was the entire panel struck, stricken and then start all over again. Now, um, what the judge did in this case is he seated the juror who was improperly stricken and waived that state's uh, preferred challenge because they used it improperly. Went up on appeal because after the conviction, because of course the defendant wanted the whole panel stricken and now it's been convicted, so they had to get the whole panel stricken, start all over again. And the court said, no, it's, uh, you can do either one, it's up to the judge to make that decision, that's a Supreme Court case, and they said it's, uh, it's now done. 
the next case we have a state, uh, sorry, Diaz versus Vanderweet, number nine. And in this case, a uh, defendant drives into an object, is taken unconscious to the hospital, they do, they smell alcohol, they suspect DUI, and there's a medical blood draw, and they seize the blood. And they're basically saying you can't do that anymore. Um, you might want to go up a little bit because it, uh, it carries over to the next page. Thanks. And they're saying, no, you can't do that anymore. It used to be you could seize the blood under what's called exigent circumstances, but they now say exigent circumstances because the alcohol is effervescent gets moved in the system, but now since you get search warrants so easy, they go, that's not an exigent circumstance, so unless you have more, you have to get a search warrant. So keep that, yes. Sorry, just question. Sure, sure. But so you have to get a search warrant on that. And since they didn't do it, and there's no good faith, it was gone. Where in a case, say, DUI drugs, where a person's taken to a hospital, where could you claim exigent circumstances? Can you pull them? No, not dying. Let's say, for instance, Chip. a person's in a lot of pain and they're going to do something to them. And what does the hospital do? They're going to inject you with drugs in order to. Yeah. Jim, uh, hold, hold the microphone to your mouth. Oh, they're going to inject you with drugs in order to lessen your pain and stuff. And the police can't really say, is, uh, is, hey, wait a minute, we're getting a search warrant. So I know he's screaming over there, but could you wait an hour until it arrives so we can not have the blood pain? And actually, one of our judges in Scottsdale had that when he was a defense lawyer is you know, they, they get the blood after uh, the hospital was injected with all these drugs and they weren't able to s switch out which drugs were injected by the hospital and which the defendant may have had in the future and that destroyed the case. So you can make an argument that is exigent circumstances under those circumstances. I'm sorry, what case did you want? Going back to eight. Eight? Yeah, what about it? What situation were, would it be appropriate to declare a mistrial and bring new jurors in versus just seeing the jurors that got away? I don't know. I would. I like the way the judge did, but I guess you could always argue judges say no. It somehow tainted the whole jury. I don't know how it would taint the whole jury, but uh, that would all be done outside of the presence. Well, yeah, it would be. It would be um, because remember they don't know what you're doing in front of their strikes. They come in after what occurred, but that's what the defense wanted, and I don't understand their argument as to how it would taint the entire jury. But hey, why not make the argument? Remember, too, a lot of this is not necessarily to win. You make the argument. If you're acquitted, it doesn't matter. If you're convicted, you've got an issue for appeal. Now, generally, what should happen is the Batson challenge should not be sustained. Because generally, the lawyer who's ever doing it should have a great racially neutral reason for doing it. In my case, the Hispanic I struck had multiple priors. So it was easy. Uh, another thing that makes it difficult to say there are seven Hispanics on the jury, you strike one. The defense isn't going to be able to make a prime facial case because there's six others. So what's the problem here? So uh, usually this does not occur. When it does occur, it's usually just done for the record and the court finds the racially neutral reasons. This is one of the few where they said no. And uh, as you know, too, we just had that recent Supreme Court case out of Mississippi where they've now tried it six times because the prosecutor made a point of striking every black person on the jury except for one. So uh, it does happen in some states. It doesn't generally happen. And generally, like I said, there is a reason to do it. How can the court waive someone else's right? Because they found, do you mean on seating the juror and then, and then waiving the strike, you mean? Yeah. Um, because they found the, the prosecutor struck for improper purposes. So the prosecutor gave that right to it. So does the term waive then the right to strike? That's just what they call it. But the, you know, there's not a lot of you to use it because you used it improperly. 
But again, like I said, that generally does not occur. You generally don't have that sort of thing happen. Uh, State versus Matthews, number 10. That has to do with resisting arrest. Um, this is uh, resisting arrest through force. So they allow the officers to say, we're victims, and we're not going to agree to an interview. And the defense is like, well, that's the whole thing, <laughs> is the officer. So went up again, and they said, no, on uh, force, they haven't decided how they're going to rule if it's passive resistance. Are you really a victim of passive resistance? And what's interesting about that, too, is um, a couple of years ago, there was a case on resisting arrest. If there's three officers, are there three counts of resisting arrest, or is there one with three officers? That case said there's one count of resisting arrest with three officers, but now you can have three victims of the one crime. But you can do that at ag assault, pointing a gun at three people, that sort of thing. Or you could, it all depends on how you charge it. But now, uh, remember, because you know, when uh, the Kansas Bill of Rights, they said we don't want to be interviewed, there's nothing the defense can do about it. So they can be uh, victims under the Victims Bill of Rights on resisting arrest through force. It's still an open question about passive resistance. Uh, next case I want to talk about is uh, number 13, uh, Souza versus Marner. And basically that has to do with the breath test. And remember now it's been determined breath tests don't have to be, you don't have to give your consent to do it, express consent. Obviously you can always say I'm not going to do the breath test. You know they talk about you don't have to give consent. How do you get a breath test if you don't give consent? I guess you can tape it out of their mouth and then jump on their stomach. But that's not going to really work. And most courts would find that to be excessive, I believe. You know, so it, you know, it's just the express consent that you don't worry about. And what they've decided is the Supreme Court has decided, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that a breath test is a lawful search incident to arrest for DUI. So you don't need a, a, a express consent. You don't need a search warrant. Um, but the defendant does basically have the consent or you can't get the, blood, uh, the breath. It's much like field sobriety tests. The defendant has the power to refuse by just not doing it, but does not have the right to refuse. And again, that's just breath tests. Blood tests are totally different. Blood tests, you have to have the express consent. If you don't have the express consent, you have to get a search warrant. Why do you think there's a difference between breath and blood? The reason is because courts have always found sticking a needle in your arm and drawing blood is an extremely invasive procedure rather than blowing at a stick. That's why they look at it that way. Because um, all the cases having to do with blood tests are all, it's so invasive. Some, somebody thinks it can go wrong with a blood test. They usually don't, but they can. So therefore, they require higher scrutiny or higher results on a breath test, uh, on a blood test. So, now, on the breath test, also, too, they talk about how our statute, 28-1321, basically says you have to have express consent. And in this case, they didn't have express consent, but the person did it. So they were saying, hey, they violated the statute, so therefore you're suppressed. And the courts here said, no, there's no, uh, the statute does not require suppression. So remember, when it, if, if it's just because the statute says you can't do it, that doesn't necessarily mean the remedy is suppression. The legislature did not say it was suppression. Uh, or the Supreme Court allows it without consent. So they said, hey, they violate the statute, but there's no remedy to violating the statute. So that was an important thing that they did. The next case that I want to talk about is uh, number 14, State versus Lofus. This is a curtilage, uh, search of a curtilage. And basically, this is one of those cases where it's really kind of weird. They want to interview you on something else, where you may be a witness. So they walk up and go through your gate. 
And then, of course, you're not the most friendly person in the world, so they go through the second gate, because you have two gates blocking. And then supposedly there's no trespass sign. So they come up, they go through all that, and then they talk to you, and they smell marijuana. So they go back and search for it. And they say, at first it was upheld, saying, hey, we're doing a community caretaker function. And they're like, well, who was in danger, or who was having a problem, or why are we doing it? Okay, that didn't work. Or it did work, but eventually that was overturned. <coughs> then they did the thing of, well, it's courage. You can walk up to someone's property unless they say no. Well, you had to go through two gates. That might give you an indication that the person is revoking the right to come on the privilege. And the key issue here was, was there a no trespassing sign? Because if you made a claim, there's no trespassing, the person has to revoke curtilage and you need something more than, hey, I can go up and knock on anyone's door unless I'm forbidden to do it. In this case, they're sent it back to say, it looks like the person may have forbidden to do it, decided there was no trespassing uh, sign, and then move on. Uh, the next case I wanted to talk to was uh, State versus Trummel, number 15. And that basically has to do is the defenses and trapping. Uh, and remember what entrapment is, I did the crime, but the police enticed me to do it. So you have to basically admit the crime. And in this case, the state wanted the lesser included. And the defense said, no, we're admitting the crime. There's no lesser included, they don't get it. And the courts here said, the state can get a lesser included, the defense can't. Why can't the defense get the lesser included? Because they admitted the crime. <laughs> they said, I did it. They're not saying there's a lesser or I did the lesser. They're saying I did the actual crime. The state isn't bound by that and doesn't conflict with what the state's agreeing because the state asked for a lesser and they said, yeah, the state can get it because they're not bound by whatever the defense is. Next one I want to talk about is number 16 because this is, again, a reversal of an earlier case last year that we talked about. And basically, uh, husband and wife, um, they, she's drunk. Husband wants to stop her from drunk driving. So he parks his car between her car and the street. Now, drunk people are not always known to make the best decisions. Her decision is, I'll get in my car, I'll back it up, and I'll ram his car out of the way. <laughs> he is not in the car, so that's an important thing. And what they do is, she gets in the car, puts it in reverse, rams his car. She doesn't quite ram it out of the way. She stops, she gets out of the car, the police arrive. Now, the police charge with DUI and criminal damage. And the only way they can prove the DUI is through the husband. Because the husband had to say she was drunk, she was driving, that sort of thing, because the police didn't see anything. And uh, they say uh, they charge them both when they're going to do the case, and the wife asserts the anti-marital fact privilege. Um, and says, husband cannot testify. Because remember, the privilege rests with the defendant, not with the spouse. I don't know if the husband wanted to testify or not. I think he didn't, but it rests with the spouse. And she can say, no, he ain't testifying. No way, no how. So what the courts do is they say, yeah, because of the anti-marital fact, um, what we're going to do is we're going to separate the crimes, the DUI, and we're going to separate the criminal damage. And the reason it was important that he wasn't in the vehicle, because if he's in the vehicle, then she's endangering him with the DUI. And the anti-marital fact doesn't apply if you're endangering your spouse or you're committing a crime with your spouse. And that kind of makes sense, because then you could beat up your spouse all you want, and when she comes to testify that you beat her up, you can say, hey, she can't testify, she's my spouse. So there's that exception to that privilege. And what they did is say, you know, we can separate the crimes because he wasn't in the car. He could testify as to criminal damage because that's a crime against him and his property, but he can't testify as to DUI. Goes up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says no. If it's all one unitary act, which in this case she damages his property while doing the criminal damage, you, he, can, he can be forced to testify, the privilege doesn't apply. 
So they reversed an earlier case from a year to two years ago, and now in those type of cases, the antimarital fact doesn't apply. Husband or spouse can be forced to testify. Uh, next case I want to talk about is number 17, Kelwood. And that basically has to do where um, it's a kind of a family matter. The defendant is being charged, and what he wants is to get the, uh, the victims, doctors, medical records, get the medical records of the victims, because sometimes victims tell doctors that uh, the crime didn't occur. And uh, the court, he wants the court to do an in-camera inspection if they find that to deliver it to the defense. The court says, no, we're not going to do that. The court is upheld because they say just mere speculation that she might have told her doctor that she didn't do it doesn't mean the court has to weigh the doctor-client privilege and review those records. So there has to be a lot more than, hey, she might have done this. And then, as you can imagine that on all discovery motions, hey, this person might have done that. It's not a good reason to grant the discovery yeah. motion if that's the case in this case. Now, the next case is uh, number 18. This is, has to do with Arizona law because there's a lot of laws, especially federal law, where it doesn't apply. Basically, there's a conviction. There's a restitution hearing. Restitution is awarded. Defense, defense is uh, appealing. Um, as to the restitution, and the defendant uh, dies trying to escape paying his just due. That again is a joke. Hopefully, he, he dies and goes to his heavenly reward, and he's with uh, heaven. He doesn't have to worry about this anymore. But, like in federal court, if the person dies pending appeal, the conviction goes away. It doesn't apply anymore because it hadn't been finished yet. I don't know if you all remember the Enron case where Mr. Lay, the CEO I think he was, dies pending his appeal. Everything was wiped out because there hadn't been a final judgment through the Court of Appeals and stuff. Arizona's different. Arizona has a specific statute, 13-106, which states, on a convicted defendant's death, the court shall dismiss any pending appeal or post-conviction relief proceedings. Now, of course, we may see those. Um, a convicted defendant's death does not abate the defendant's criminal conviction or sentence of imprisonment or any restitution, fine, or assessment imposed by a sentencing court. So Arizona's just different. So if they try to cite, oh, federal law does this, other states do this, yeah, but they don't have the law that Arizona does that says, no, it all is there. You're out of luck. Um, one of the things I thought was odd, although um, we have a difference of opinion between Jerry Lando and I, is I think it should abate the sentence of imprisonment. And I'm against putting dead people in prison. Uh, it, it really creates trouble for the cellmates and stuff and, and the rest of the people. He was saying, no, no, it's just the sentence. You don't actually have to put them in prison. You don't have to But so that's the case. Um, as I said, it's different than federal law. It's different than other states. So remember, if you ever have that come up, that uh, we have it. Next thing I want to talk about is number 18. And this is one that's really kind of weird because they change the subpoena for a victim. And basically what it is is um, I have you watching my kids while I'm out and my husband's gone. And then you invite over your friends and your friends steal them from the house. So I come back, find out everything's been stolen, the police show up. Um, and they say, uh, what was stolen? And I go, just costume jewelry. Not, uh, a bunch of costume jewelry, but nothing big. Did you have any Rolexes? Nope, never had Rolexes. Uh, and then, okay, they find your friends who did it. They find some of the custom, custom jewelry at pawn shops and stuff like that. Now restitution's coming up because you've been, your friends have been convicted. And first it is, um, I'm requesting like $2,000 in restitution. 
Then it is I'm requesting $20,000 in restitution because guess what? It wasn't all costume jewelry. It was a lot of expensive pieces for Jackie. Then I'm requesting $30,000 in restitution because not only did I have a Rolex, but that Rolex was stolen. Now most people remember if they have a Rolex or not and whether it's stolen or not. So some people suspect by reading the opinion that maybe the person's not being truthful as to the restitution amount. They set a restitution hearing um, on all these various uh, amounts. Uh, the defendant show, uh, victim shows up like a couple of times and refuses to participate anymore. Uh, defendant complains um, and the court finds restitution uh, and awards like the $30,000 in restitution based on the previous letters. PCR occurs and the defendants say, nope, I didn't get a right to bring him in. I should have had a right to bring him in. And also the PCR, uh, the victim's husband, ex-husband comes in and says she's nothing but a liar. She's always been a liar. She never had this jewelry. She was telling the truth the first time when she said she didn't have it. Of course, they're no longer married. Uh, and I guess maybe the anti-marital fact privilege didn't really work in that case. But, uh, and it wouldn't work anyway, she's a victim. But, uh, so he comes in. So there, some people might be suspicious as to the amount of restitution. But the judge awarded it all. So it goes up and they say, no, the judge shouldn't have done that. The defendant does have a right to subpoena the victim. Now, if the victim doesn't show, or anyone doesn't show up on a subpoena, and your subpoena always says one thing at the end, failure to abide the subpoena may result in arrest or warrant for your arrest. Here they say the courts are not allowed to do that for the victim, which I'm not sure why they say that or how they get that, um, because I, not, I didn't ever see where a subpoena has an exception carved out for the victim, but they don't have to obey them. So I think that's really kind of a weird decision. But what they do say is that the court can consider the fact that the victim did not appear as the subpoena. And then, of course, you can just say, I don't believe this request. The victim did not appear. Therefore, I'm not awarding any restitution. And from the facts of this case, unless something really odd has occurred, they shouldn't be awarding restitution. So they overturned it and sent it back to have a response. Um, one of the big cases, too, that I wanted to jump to is 21, issue preclusion. And this is another reversal that occurs from the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals from last year. And basically what it is is um, they believe father is abusing child, physically abusing child. The, they filed to stop the child going back to the father through dependency action. There's a hearing held. In the meantime, the state files criminal charges against the father for abusing the child. At the dependency action, the courts say, um, we don't find that the father was abusing the child. We dismiss it. Then the criminal charge, the defendant then says, you're precluded now from raising that issue or trying to prove I abused the child because there's already been a judicial determination I did. Court of Appeals says, yeah, you can't really use that. And one of the reasons you can't really use it is that um, you know these hearings are done quickly. They're done in order to protect the child. They're not really thinking about these issues later on. So therefore, we don't want to. We're going to. We're not going to risk the child not being protected until the state's ready to do the prosecution. So you can't use this collateral stop. Goes up to Supreme Court and say, yes, you can use this collateral stop. And uh, the one of the Part of the reasons are, of course, what's interesting in this case is um, if it had been reversed where you have a beyond reasonable doubt and they had not found the person guilty, you could probably still go with the dependency action because that's a lower standard. You may not find a higher standard, but you can find a lower standard. So there's no conclusion. In this case, they were doing the opposite. 
they're going from either clear and convincing or preponderance, but for a child action, I imagine it's clear and convincing, and finding that's not proven. How then, if you can't find a lower standard, can you find a higher standard? And the next thing they're done too on issue conclusion is it has to be the same parties. Now, of course, the prosecution was saying, wait, it's different. This was a CPS or whatever they call them now, D DPS or DES. Um, that was a different agency and not the prosecutor's agency said, no, it's all the state of Arizona. So they did allow issue preclusion. So you might see more of that in those type of cases where that comes up. And as I said, it is a reversal of the Court of Appeals. So it could be a new interesting issue. Next one, 22, State versus Weakland. Is there a question? Any questions? Well, I was just going to ask a question about the dependency issue. So the dependency finding is beyond or a high preponderance. I think it's clear and convincing for dependency, but it could be a preponderance, but there's still a law in the reasonable doubt. Okay. In a determination of parental rights, in a severance action, it is clear and convincing. Okay. How would that be translated? It wouldn't, because the main thing is, as long as there are lower standards, if you can't find a lower standard, but the reverse is, you, if you don't find a higher standard, you could always, if, if the evidence is there, find a lower standard. So even though you can't find beyond a reasonable doubt, you might find clear and convincing. Because uh, like when I do criminal trials, sometimes you'll be like, you know, I, preponderance, I kind of believe he did the crime, but that's not beyond a reasonable doubt, so you have to quit. Uh, just because you met the lower standard, you can't get to the higher. Now, the next case we want to talk about is Weakland. And this is again, um, you know, Valenzuela one, Valenzuela two, with the applied consent. Uh, Arizona law uh, requires you to consent. Valenzuela came out, and I'm just making up years now because I can't remember the exact years. I say Valenzuela occurred in 2012. Valenzuela two, which is a Supreme Court case about the applied consent, saying it's no longer good. good thing. What the defense was saying is, yes, that is good. That uh, even though it's a violation of the law, good faith applies, but that goes back to the 2012 case. There's been a change of law in the meantime, Butler. And what Butler was, is Butler was a juvenile, he goes out on his high school lunch, tokes up, and then comes back driving. And they interview him without his parents being present, and they eventually get a blood draw, and that sort of thing, and he goes up for DUI. They say um, that uh, the judge in that case, which I disagree with the trial judge, but they get to decide the facts, said, you know, it was a, not really voluntary because the parents weren't there, that sort of thing. And though it does talk dicta about applied consent. And uh, what happened, in my opinion, in that case, what happened was when, uh, when it went up, the Court of Appeals overturns the trial judge, it goes up to the Supreme Court. And in my opinion, what the Supreme Court is really saying in that case is, no, this is a factual determination. The trial judge made the factual determination. Because the trial judge made that factual determination, appellate courts can't change the factual determination. Appellate courts can only say the law is this, you misinterpreted the law, or the law has changed, and this changes. The appellate court, what they really did is overturn the facts and decided to be fact, and therefore we're returning the appellate court, Butler, it's suppressed. Um, others read it as the defense bar mainly is that it started to change the law. Um, and told people that, you, because there is data about the implied consent, it started to change the law, and therefore, police officers were on notice that the law is unsettled, the law is changing, and they needed to stop doing the implied consent. 
So in Wheatland, the Supreme Court said, which I actually said, so maybe they heard it and copied it from me. Again, that's another joke. <laughs> we have to say this because you're recording. What they said, and, and I agree with them, because I was saying the same thing, is that all our courts were saying implied consent is fine. Even Valenzuela 1, the Court of Appeals was saying implied consent is fine, until Valenzuela 2 said, no, it's not. So how can we expect the police to know there's a change in the law or, or act as if there's a change in the law when law-trained judges don't say that and when the Court of Appeals doesn't say that? They say the law is still good. So they're saying, no, the Valenzuela applies up to the date it comes out. Good faith applies up to, well, Valenzuela applies to, applies at all times, because basically what it does is say can't use the admin per se that says Arizona law requires. Good faith applies up to Valenzuela coming out, because now the police have been put on notice. There's a change in the law. You cannot do this anymore. So uh, they threw out the uh, Butler argument that it is somehow unsettled the law. Um, number 23, again, goes back to the issue about breath tests, that it does not require the uh, voluntary agreement of the defendant. Now, what's interesting about number 24 is that on that one, the statute is still different than the new applied consent. Because if you read the statute, what it says is, you're supposed to say, uh, you know, you've been arrested for DUI, will you do this test? And then you get a yes or no. Now, if they say no, then what you're supposed to say is, guess what? Your license is going to be suspended for a year. Now, that kind of creates problems. Because if you follow the way the statute does it, then the person's going to say, well, if you told me my license was going to be suspended for a year, I would have done it. Well, too late. You should have known that. You didn't. We're following the statute. Your license is suspended for a year. Or if you say, oh, I will do the test now, then, oh, I only agreed to do it because I was coerced because they told me I was going to lose my license. The new admin per se says, you know, you got to do the, you, uh, will you do the test? If you don't do the test, your license will be suspended. That's what they're complaining about. They should have strictly followed the statute, not told them until after the refusal. And the Supreme Court said no. The way it is is fine. You don't have to follow specifically exactly how they did the statute. It's okay to tell them before you ask what the consequence is of not doing the test. So that was another argument they were making that it didn't apply. Uh, next one I want to talk about is 25, uh, has to do with searches, APL searches. Um, the defendant is allegedly contacting a uh, person's dog, underage dog, and he's forbidden to do that as part of his probationary terms. And the victim or lady believes they're doing it through the father. Uh, she imparts this to the APL, APL decides to do a search, phone is seized, and they search the phone without a warrant. That's a problem because we know the Supreme Court has said now we have to get a warrant to search a phone. Now the APO says, no, I don't need a warrant. And why does the APO not need a warrant under their opinion? Yeah, because generally under probationary terms, one of the first things you do is I agree to waive Fourth Amendment rights to search and seizure, and they can do that. Now, that's part of the probationary terms. Uh, the judge doesn't quite agree. It goes up to the appellate courts, and the appellate courts say yes. In order to um, if you're, on, if, you're on, uh, if you're on probation, you've given up the right to the Fourth Amendment as long as it's a probation officer. It doesn't mean police can just stop you and search you because that's not part of the probation. Uh, but if the probation officer, and again, they can't do it at the behest of the police, they have to do it on their own. 
<laughs> so if that's occurring, you, you can get around it by saying the APO did the search, and it's valid, because in this case, that's one of the terms. It's not in contact children, and that's what the person's doing. So therefore, you didn't need a warrant because the person's on probation. It's valid because the probation officer is doing its part of their normal job. And they list the things you need to look at. One of the things being is, of course, you have to be on probation, um, which would make sense. It looks like. Okay. It looks like I mixed up another case. The number 26 is the one I was talking about where the uh, victim adds in all the money, stuff like that. Sorry, sorry, I mixed up another case. 26 is the one we're talking about where the victim uh, is inflating constantly, and that gives you the, uh, the law on that. Sorry about that. Next one, though, I'd like to talk about is number 28, State versus Taggy, T-A-G-G-E. And basically, this has to do with medical marijuana. And it's in Mesa, and these people are going to, these uh, siblings are going to go to a concert in Mesa. And the concert place has rented uh, uh, the city parking lot for them to park there as part of the uh, ticket to get into the concert. And these two drive up, and they light up in their car, marijuana cigarettes start smoking. Uh, unfortunately, there's two Mesa undercover cops next to them. They notice them smoking. They come over and knock on the window. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, we're smoking. Isn't that a problem? Oh no, we have a car. And why would that be not, is that not going to help? Because they both have valid cars that possess and use marijuana with the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act. Right. They're a public place. And you can't smoke marijuana in a public place uh, under that act. So sure. the first defense is we're not in a public place. Sure. We are in a parking lot. We are in a parking lot that, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, is private because the company that's throwing the concert has rented it out. And they go, nah, <laughs> we're not going to buy it. Okay, if you don't buy that, the old John Levitt's thing, would you believe? And they go, uh, we're in a sealed car, and therefore we're not in public. And they go, nah, <laughs> that's not going to work. Now, they did raise an interesting thing that might work. And what might work? A mobile home? <laughs> if you're in a mobile home, is that a car? Is that a home? public or is it private? And I can think of where that's going to be a really big issue is tailgate parks. Yeah. Where they, you know, the rich folk, not, not poor working slobs like me, but the rich folk drive up with their big uh, Winnebago's and stuff like that and they all have marijuana cards and they're all smoking inside the van. Um, or in your case, you know, we all, if the vans are rocking, <laughs> so you're smoking marijuana. Um, but, uh, so that's going to be an interesting issue when that occurs. And I can see that in tailgates and stuff like that. Now, of course, ASU bars people from using marijuana, whether they have a car or not, in uh, on their property. Yeah. So, uh, so that is cannabis or not. It depends on where you're parking, I guess. But, um, so that was an interesting issue where they said, no, uh, you're smoking in public, you're sitting there in the car, or whatever they see. So uh, they lost. Next case we want to talk about, which I think is going to be overturned, I hope it will be overturned as a former prosecutor, is State versus Hernandez. And this has some interesting issues that you don't get an explanation from. They run your car as you're driving, the car's stolen, and they come after you, the officer chases you, gets a good look at you, and there's other people in the car, eventually you dump the car, and you run off. By coincidence, other officers happen to show up with a picture of you, <laughs> right after this occurs. 
So it's kind of like, why are other officers driving around in that area with a picture? But they show you the picture to the officer and goes, that's him. And then eventually he runs the person, finds another picture of him and says, that's him. And weeks later, they catch him. Now, the stolen car has been returned to the owner. And one of the things they did is take pictures of the stolen car. And one of the things you can see in the picture, a big thing that looks like a thumbprint or fingerprint or something. And so eventually you're arrested, the trial comes up, and they raise the Deseret issue. Which again, I find interesting in city court, you usually don't see Deseret issues. In felony court, you saw them all the time. Um, and Deseret is basically is the, uh, the show up or lineup or whatever unduly suggestive. If so, is there enough indicia of reliability to allow the uh, in, that, in identification in court? And in this case, there's one, on, uh, one picture, it's just a guy. And uh, so obviously, it's, un, it's suggestive. You know, it's all this question suggestive. Is it unduly suggestive? And in this case, they find it's not unduly suggestive. One is because it's done fairly quickly. It's much like a one-on-one -on -one show up. If you do it right close to the crime, it's fine. Usually within an hour. If you do it 17 hours or 17 days later, it's usually not fine. Because the theory is, is hey, they wouldn't be bringing me here unless they think that's him. So they said it wasn't unduly suggestive, and they allowed it in. And again, also to work because police officers are trained to look at identification how long you saw the person, how close you were to the person, all those things. The judge says, no, I don't find it unduly suggestive. It's suggestive, obviously, but not unduly allowed in. So then um, that, goes, that goes up on appeal, it's denied. The next issue is, is they want a Willits instruction. And Willits is that the state destroyed or failed to preserve things of evidentiary value that could help you when your case is defended. And they said, um, well, they should have fingerprinted that car, that car. And since they didn't fingerprint the car, it's okay to give a will, uh, because the defendant requested a will, so the judge should have given one. And uh, it's no big deal because the state can always rebut that. Now, if you've ever tried a case, none of that's true. First of all, police never fingerprint a car, unless it's a rich person demanding it. So you're not going to get fingerprints. They don't fingerprint houses unless it's a rich person demanding it. One time when I was in the road program, they would interview burglars and stuff like that, consensual interview, and that would get some less time. And then go, um, you know, I like to hit, I don't like to hit really rich houses. And they go, why is that? And he goes, because those people are going to demand the police do fingerprinting. Whereas, you know, middle class people or poor people, they could care less and they're not going to get that. So it's less evidence against me. So first of all, you know, it's never going to happen. Second of all is every case you're going to have to bring in an expert to say, the fact that there aren't fingerprints doesn't mean anything. A lot of times people don't leave it. A lot of times you don't, you can't fingerprint the whole car. Um, a lot of times people write down their fingerprints. So the fact that your fingerprints aren't there is not exculpatory. The only thing that can happen is your fingerprints are there. It can be inculpatory. So since it doesn't tend to exculpate, you shouldn't get the Willits. But in this case, the court of appeals says, yeah, you should get the Willits. It's no big deal. Do it. Um, so the case has been reversed. Hopefully that will go up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will say, no, you don't get a Willits there because lack of fingerprints is not exculpatory. So we'll see if that happens, if there's a change. Next case I want to talk about is number 30, and that is the one that overturns uh, case 7. And basically it was under the Medical Marijuana Act, the person had a resident, and they said, no, that's not good enough, we won't get the case. And they said, no, that's not really the case. I don't know what the Court of Appeals was talking about seven. It seemed to me plain, but then I'm not that wise. Um, but then the Supreme Court agreed with me and said no. Right, uh, huh? 
Supreme Court that you are. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. They agree and said I'm right. Or maybe they agree that I'm not that smart. Is that what you mean? But, but the Supreme Court said no, obviously it's resident two. It's written broadly enough, so therefore they reverse that and they allow it in. Um, I'm not sure why that occurred in the Court of Appeals, but it, the Supreme Court does seem to be a correct one. Next case is uh, number 31, and this has to do with uh, prosecutorial misconduct. We had two issues. One issue was they were trying to claim that the state was commenting on the defendant's right to remain silent. They weren't, and they said no, they weren't. What it really was is uh, the defense raises the defense of, hey, my client was talking such and such, and if it was exculpatory, or if it was incriminatory, they would have brought in that person. And the prosecutor got up and said, hey, both sides have subpoenas. Any side can bring in any other one, and they could have brought them in if they want. So the courts were saying, no, it isn't really commenting on the defendant's right to remain silent, because of course, the defendant isn't the only one that can come and testify to a conversation. The, uh, the other person could, yeah, they have a conversation. Of course, then you get into a problem with your city and stuff. But, um, and the other thing was, it was a response or rebuttal to the defense argument that, hey, the state should have brought that person in. So that was denied. The next issue comes is, is uh, um, prosecutorial vindictiveness is, during the interviews, basically what it is is, I owe you money. I haven't been paying, we've been friends for a long time. I understand you're at this residence. I go over, pounding on the door, and I say, hey, I want my money, and I've got a gun. And you say, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let you in. No. And what you do is you say, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm gonna put the gun away. The next thing you know is a shot comes through the door, kills you. <laughs> and then I run off. So as the defense was doing the interviews on, they charged felony murder, uh, first degree murder, not felony murder. As the defense is doing the interviews, the state starts to realize, well, maybe the claim is going to be that was an accident. I'm putting the gun, the gun away in an accident and discharge. So what they do is they then add a charge of felony murder and say, hey, you're there for robbery to get that money. So therefore, there's felony murder. So defense moves to dismiss the prosecution, saying this is vindictive because they've added this charge. And they say no. Vindictive prosecution is generally where you, as a defendant, exercise some constitutionally protected right, and I, as the prosecutor, uh, do something to defeat that or punish you for doing it at charges, that sort of thing. You're saying no. As you do interviews, you may realize there's a weakness in your case. And the fact that you move to do something additional to defeat that weakness does not mean you're being vindictive. You're just defeating the weakness that you saw. So they say no, that doesn't apply. And then the issue that does come up that causes a lot of trouble for the prosecutor is they say um, when he's talking to the jury, he keeps saying felony murder is a less serious or lesser offense of first degree murder. It is not. It is the same. <laughs> and they're saying by saying that repeatedly as part of the argument, the prosecutor was misleading the jury and making them think, oh, well, yeah, we, don't, we don't want to do first degree murder. But we can do the lesser because that's the lesser. And so they overturned it on that basis. So that was an interesting issue. Um, and of course, the defendant objected during the time, too. That's important, the defendant objected. Now, the next case that I would like to talk about, and the final one, is State versus Habertown. And that has been around for like four or five years. It just keeps rising up. It's already been at the Supreme Court once. And basically, what it is is there's a car accident in Mojave County and the defendant is injured, and the defendant is airlifted to Nevada to be treated. And the DPS here calls Nevada PD and says, we believe this is a DUI, we believe the defendant is, is intoxicated, we need the blood. 
and they seize the blood without a warrant. And then give it to DPS. DPS wants to introduce it, and they say, no, you can't introduce it. Uh, it, is a, it is a violation of Arizona law. So it goes up to the Supreme Court, and what's interesting is the Supreme Court is the first one to address the issue that I think is important, is, is it Nevada law or Arizona law that applies? Because the blood was seized in Nevada. Now, the Supreme Court says, in Arizona, you seize that blood, and Arizona law does not allow it because of not SRS and all those changes that they had. You should have got a warrant. And because the law changed before Nevada police seized the blood, there's no good faith in Arizona because the officer should have known the laws change and you can't do that. So the issue comes, the Supreme Court says if Arizona law applies, the blood is out. Trial court, you can determine which law applies. That court looks at it and says, Nevada law applies. And to me, it seems perfectly reasonable that Nevada law would apply. Because the whole purpose of the exclusionary rule is you want to tell police, you know this is wrong, you shouldn't do this, and because you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway, we're suppressing the evidence to punish you and teach you a lesson, don't do this, because you're not going to get the evidence. Under Nevada law, they did not have the same case law that we did. So the thing about seizing the blood was still valid in Nevada. And it was still good faith in Nevada because their law had not changed. Only Arizona law had changed. So if you, you, why would you punish a police officer in Nevada for doing something that under their law is clearly appropriate and clearly within the law? That doesn't affect, that doesn't help us, uh, the exclusionary law because it's allowed there. So they said, does Nevada law apply? Yes, because that's where the blood was seized. Is, can it come in under Nevada law? Yes. So now it has gone to the Court of Appeals, which agrees with that, and now we'll go to the Supreme Court again to see if they agree with it. But it's, it should, that's the way it should be, so it'll be interesting to see what happens and how it, how it uh, works its way out. But I mean, that case just keeps going on and on and on. Someone must have a lot of money or a rich relative. But uh, eventually, you know, I, I kind of think that reasoning is correct. Um, but of course, it's, you know, if you ever read a case and you're going, oh, they're going to suppress this stuff, and they get to the end and they don't suppress, or vice versa. Oh, they're, they're not going to suppress this, and then they do suppress. So, you know, they have the ability to surprise us, which is what makes life interesting. There's all this surprises. It makes the law interesting. Anyone have any questions? Without any of that. Thanks, Jim. Okay. No problem.